This is Train to Perform, the undisputed alpha podcast in training, fitness, and sports performance. Here, you'll develop your skills with the cold, hard facts in fitness, sports performance, recovery, and nutrition. Real, tried and true, evidence-based facts that have been proven to move you faster, move you stronger, and move you forward. Now, here's your host of Train to Perform, Julian Sisman. Welcome back to the Train to Perform podcast. Uh, we hope you guys are doing well during this crazy, uncertain time. But again, um, new episode today. We got Mike Young, Dr. Mike Young, out of the Athletic Lab in North Carolina in the Raleigh area. Um, Mike is worked um, either in the college or pro or youth level for 20 to 30 years now um, and really has um, changed um, you know I, I started watch listening and um, uh, reviewing his content five six seven years ago when I was um, you know trying to be a professional soccer player and stay fit and learn as much as I can but I think I learned a lot from him to this day just on how to you know run a business but also <clears throat> how to train um, soccer players um, we talk about so much um, you know I really we, he touches a lot of he answers a lot of my questions within some of the responses that um, he makes on with just one question that I ask um, you know we talk about speed we talk about um, youth development, long-term athletic development for soccer players. Um, we even talk about how his daughter, um, you know, started honestly strength training at eight years old and, you know, started dabbling with, you know, different things. And, you know, she's, you know, 13 now and crushing it. So, um, it's really important that honestly, any soccer coach, strength coach, parent, um, listen to this. Uh, we touch a lot of subjects, uh, and I will put them in the show notes below. But if you want to learn more about his work, uh, check him out at, at Athletic Lab on Instagram or at Mike Young PhD. So, hope you guys enjoy it. Again, please share, review. Um, thank you, and uh, have a great day. So, what's going on, man? So, how, how's everything with you? Uh, I know you're you're busy guy you know with especially with the last minute nwsl tournament i think uh i don't i mean I don't, i'm not sure if that was last minute but i'm sure it was like kind of yeah it was a little unexpected and um but we um you know i work with them on a daily basis we're taking a little break right now we resume training on the 17th uh, it's actually you know been quite busy over the break some of it has just been repurposed repurposed hours lately i've been coaching a lot though so uh, the business has uh, the business is still like pretty restricted we can only have professionals inside uh and some collegiate athletes so that's you know that's uh our general fitness and high schoolers have to stay outside that's a huge portion for us that's probably like 60 to 70 percent of our total people um so professionals and collegiates inside and uh yeah, I've got like a pretty nice training schedule now uh, with the, training some of the courage girls and then uh, I got a pro track group and um, some NBA guys that 
uh, from teams that weren't in the bubble. So uh, it's been busy, and then we're trying to do some uh, a couple of other little things like uh, coaching ed stuff, putting that on, putting our mentorship online. So a lot of it's been like getting creative, repurposing hours. But thankfully, we uh, I've been I've been busy, and uh, I'm grateful that for that. We're, it, it is hard. It is going to be a hurting though, but we're. Uh, we're coming up on six months, I think. Or, uh, and then I think we just got extended for another. Two, uh, it, we're, it's going to be six and a half months of closure or heavy, heavily restricted. Four months of closure, two and a half months of heavily restricted. So, so you know, what restrictions do you guys have? We uh, kind of curious. Yeah, we just with my with my uh, facility. It's basically we can't. No high schoolers can come inside. No, uh, basically only pro athletes, pro athletes and collegiate athletes can come inside. Everyone else has to stay outside. So we have, we've created a makeshift training area outside. We've got like squat racks and bubble plates and everything rolled out some rubber, but it, you know, it's, uh, Carolina, it's 95 degrees and 95% not ideal. Uh, but we're making it work. People are yeah. largely it's just you know it's not everything's a little compromised a little restricted your new facility don't you have a a turf outside on the side of it we do we do so we can do some stuff out there um we have a we have two full we have two full fields right outside that's what i thought yeah so it's quite nice in that regard but it's uh it's not it's not ours completely so we sometimes have to give it up to other groups and that kind of thing but i mean that's been a, a really beneficial thing to have in a situation like this like we we can use no one else has anything like that we just have to work around some other field reservations uh, big soccer club around here takes over the field probably for 12 hours a week that kind of thing so but it, it, yeah it's been it's been a godsend to have it really it's yeah. worked really well Sweet. Sweet. So, um, you know, really, I just try to kind of like get an idea of like where, what, how you started into what you're into now. And then I'm just going to kind of, I have written down a bunch of questions that will probably lead me to other questions. But, um, you know, how'd you get started into, you know, what, what you're doing? Like, really, I've been following you for God, I, I can't even tell you how long. Um, I mean, I think the one main thing was like when I was trying to play pro, I was looking for someone that somewhere I can get more fitness, soccer fitness stuff. Um, And I think you were in that transition of leaving Vancouver, kind of like in in, not as much involved anymore. And, um, you know, I was and you were doing a lot of blogging about like, different fitness stuff and then that's where I kind of ran across her name but um I mean I don't know that was probably like five six seven years ago <laughs> yeah 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 so uh so where are you from first of all I'm from uh Buffalo New York but I've lived okay. all over the place so uh spent about 20 years in Buffalo uh, moved to Athens Ohio for two different stints uh to go to school and uh, to finish a dissertation, 
Uh, lived in Louisiana for four years, lived in Vancouver for a little over two, um, lived in North Carolina, two states, adding up to around 10 years. Um, lived in uh, West Point, New York for three and a half years. So I've been around quite a bit. Uh, short stints here and there, like, uh, you know, kind of like living for a month or two months or whatever in different parts of the country as well. But those are the, those are the big ones. I think I've moved all told probably something like 15 times, uh, which is which is pretty high for a non-military brat kind of yeah. guy. Um, but uh, yeah, I enjoy I enjoy travel. I enjoy the adventure of it. I'm not don't feel really tied down. My, my parents are not from the, uh, they live here. My my mom lives in the U.S. in Buffalo, but uh, we don't have any other family in the country, so it's not like I have massive roots in anywhere in particular. Um, yeah, did my undergrad at Ohio University, stayed for a master's degree, moved on to LSU for a PhD. Up until that point, uh, and actually slightly beyond that, I was almost exclusively track and field and strength and conditioning. So my background as an athlete was track and field. I was really enamored by strength and conditioning. Uh, I was a decathlete, so I had a good basis of not just speed development and strength development from throwing and sprinting, but also you have to run a, run a mile and you have to uh, jump. So it's kind of an all around athletic background in terms of what I was training myself to be. And later the event group that I've kind of uh, had the most success in probably in track and field is the decathlon. And so left LSU, coached at West Point for a couple of years, uh, left West Point to start my business. Uh, that's kind of when I started to get integrated in soccer. So I moved down to North Carolina, sight unseen. It was one of these places that uh, I just thought would make a good fit. It, it had checked a lot of boxes. I was down here just for a site visit. Uh, I liked it so much and a handful of opportunities kind of popped up, none of which actually came to fruition. Kept me down here long enough to settle, settle down a little bit in an apartment. Uh, after about three or four months here, uh, I was approached by an, an ASL team, which at the time was second division U.S. soccer. Uh, the, uh, and it was actually the Carolina Railhawks at the time. They asked me to run their, be, be their fitness coach. So I, of course, jumped at it. Uh, in retrospect, I wasn't, I, they put full faith in me. Uh, we had full buy-in. It was tremendous. We had unbelievable results. In retrospect, there was a lot of stuff that I didn't know. I threw myself into it wholeheartedly and really tried to learn as much about both the game as well as how to train as, as well as possible. Track and field gave me some really solid foundation there because I think it's kind of the mother of all sports. You got to run fast, run far, jump high, that kind of thing. Uh, obviously, every sport has its nuance, but the, the physiology and the training theory has its roots in track and field and other performance-oriented sports like that. Uh, so I worked with that NASL team for two years. We were really, really successful. So we uh, you know, had the highest goal score in North America, all of North America, MLS, NASL, USL. Uh, we won the league twice. So we kind of gone from me mediocre to very, very top flight. Uh, right after after the second year, I got a couple MLS job offers. I took one of them and uh, went to Vancouver for, for two years. Great stint there. Uh, left my business behind, uh, tried to run it from afar. And then when I came back after two years, 
help Vancouver just a little bit while I, while I come back, seeing if they could manage some of the systems that I put into place, and then came back. Within about a year or two of coming back, I started to work with that same club, which then had transformed from North Carolina Railhawks to NCFC, uh, North Carolina Football Club. They subsequently got a women's team, the North Carolina Courage. They bought them from Western New York, which is not too far from where I'm originally from. I've pretty much been full-time with the women's team since they came on. It's a little bit more involved role for a variety of reasons. The women's league has a very tight relationship with the federation. We've got uh, five U.S. national team players, so I'm effectively a surrogate to the to the players while they're gone. Um, heavily supported through the federation, our GPS system, our tracking, our monitoring, all of that. Uh, I have access to a, thing, a lot of things that the league profitability probably would not otherwise permit. Um, so it's a pretty high level experience for the girls um, because of what we're able to provide. And so I'm with them every day, uh, still overseeing the men's side. Uh, I'm kind of the performance director for the whole club. So I have someone who's day to day with the club, uh, a system of mine, Bill Haynes. He uh, is with them two to three days a week, does their S&C, sometimes runs their warm-ups and their conditioning. And um, I'm not with them as much anymore, the men's side. I'm with the women all the time. And then still coach our pros and other, other areas. Still work quite a bit in track and field. Uh, right now I've got a group of uh, 13 elite-level track and field guys. If all goes to plan, we'll have at least – at least one, I think, in Tokyo Olympics. And uh, I would guess that 10 plus will be at the Olympic trials. And have gotten a couple of NBA guys that I'm working with right now. That's seasonal, obviously. And a couple uh, NFL guys that uh, is also seasonal. But I have had the business for approaching 11 years. I think it's just coming up on a week. Uh, week or two where we'll hit the 11 year mark. So I've dabbled in a couple of different areas. Uh, at, at somewhere, that, somewhere there, I also coached at NC State. So uh, over the past uh, maybe 15 years, I have had, I've worked in two of three different domains for the whole time uh, either private sector, professional sport or collegiate sport. Uh, I've worked in two of those at any given time. Uh, I, I can't recall a point where I where it was ever down to one, and at some point there may have been an overlap of three. So, uh, you know, it's given me a little bit of a unique perspective. People kind of always think grass is greener in the other side, and I can assure you that there are pros and cons to every different area. Um, you know, whether that's money or time or uh, support or the level of athlete you work with, they all have their pros and cons. Uh, I, I do feel very lucky and blessed to be able to work in, to work across a couple of them. Um, and, you know, would, would kind of explore other areas if, if opportunities came about as well. But it's, I really enjoy what I do. I, I like kind of going to work every day because I get to work with really cool people and do the things that I'm really passionate about. Yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> I hope you are because that's a lot of it's <laughs> a lot. Um, wow! So you were, you you touched like 
a bunch of my questions, but kind of going back to uh, the track and field and its relationship, like kind of how does it, how do you feel like it overlaps with sort of soccer, um, especially on the, like now, like, you know, like with soccer, um, like old, like a long time ago, especially when I was playing um, until more recently, um, there was a, a, there was not much of like, S and C. Uh, I mean, and, and I'm not even that old. Like I'm only 32 years old and, um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't really like the thing to do back in the day. It was like, are right, you going to warm, like literally practices, like warm up, like run a couple laps, like get ready for practice. And then, you know, like the old school way, um, especially here in the U S um, how do you see it has changed and like, what do you feel like needs to be changed? Like a, a few things that need to be changed. I still feel like it still, you know, goes on. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I've seen it morph a little bit and uh, better practitioners and better practices have kind of come into play. Um, I, I actually, I'm going to back up just a little bit and say that I think that, uh, yeah, you uh, soccer SNC strength conditioning in the U.S. is quite poor, and it doesn't need to be. Um, I still think there's a really bad culture of, especially on the men's side, uh, with SNC. I, I haven't seen it so much on the women's side. I'm not sure. I haven't worked with women at the pro level as much as I work with men, but I have quite a few uh, high schoolers and collegiate athletes that I work with, and they all are, you know, very hard nosed. And here's the interesting thing. Well, how I try to reconcile this or make sense of it is that when men in the U.S. look up to see who's the best players in the world, they look over to Europe, and oftentimes they'll look at players in countries where there's no SNC zero, or they'll have a guy who's clearly great. He doesn't go in the gym. He doesn't maybe work hard. Uh, on the women's side the women need to look no further than the women in the U.S. And the women in the U.S. are taller, faster, stronger, better endurance, better athletes. We just run over girls. So we run over every other team in the, in the world at the World Cup level and the club, club championships, whatever. And, um, you know, I think that – so when we're looking for role models, that's what you see across genders. And, you know, I think that's starting to change as you get guys – at the uh, highest level of the sport on the men's side in Europe and elsewhere who are legitimate, you know, gym rats. Uh, Ronaldo's kind of putting a dent in that a little bit with the longevity of his career and obviously the amount of, at least the, the, his sheer athleticism. Um, but I think that's kind of the roots of it. Now, what's a shame here is that U.S. on the men's side are going to have a really hard time ever catching up to their European or South American counterparts because we just don't have the playing culture that, that those countries have. But what's easy to catch up on is the SNC. I can say without a doubt that U.S. is the best SNC country in the world. It's not even close, in my opinion. Uh, every other country looks up to us. Now, when it comes to monitoring, that's a different story. Uh, you can throw in countries like you know, UK and Spain and uh, Australia has been doing a fantastic job in terms of monitoring player load and GPS and heart rate monitoring and different metrics and tests and so forth. 
But in terms of just simply getting someone strong and fast and powerful and enduring, enduring U.S. is top. I mean, we're, that's why we're top in those sports, track and field and distance running and weightlifting and, you know, whatever. We do really well in physical development. Um, but not so much when it comes to physical development for the, the football or the soccer player, so especially on the men's side. So it is really interesting, but I have seen it come a long way. So now players are a little bit more open to going in the weight room. Uh, it's still like a pretty poor culture, especially on the men's side. Again, I hate to pick on the men, but this is what I generally see with, with uh, if I were to take 100 athletes and generalize them, this is what I would say. With my women, I'm probably telling them to take take weight off the bar, right? They're pushing super hard. They're really hard driving. They really get after it in the weight room. We train incredibly hard. Like even our, our GPS metrics on the weekly load and that kind of thing, insanely hard. Full buy-in as a team for the courage is why we win, or part of the reason why we win. We just physically dominate other players, other teams. On the men's side, uh, that's not the case. On the men's side, I might be forcing them to put weight on the bar. So it's just this odd mentality where I'm like, Women, I'm almost, our women in particular, we've got this unbelievable culture. I'm almost having to rein them back sometimes. And then on the men's side, I'm having to push them forward. And uh, I think that that mindset really kind of plays into things like, you know, I could tell our girls, you know, they'll, I, I would guess, for example, our, our uh, squat maxes across the men's and women's teams are not totally disparate from each other. There's probably a good bit of overlap just simply because of this cultural difference uh, that the, the women will push so hard and the men will, uh, you know, need to be pushed quite a bit. It is coming up, but it's, it's slow. It's kind of like what happened in baseball many years ago, right? It wasn't until you got your Mark McGuire's and your Sandy Sosa steroids notwithstanding that people started to realize like, hey, physical, physicality can give you a, a huge boost in your game. And until people really recognize that in the sport of soccer, I think it's going to lag behind. Uh, but people are starting to realize that. You know, when you look at the, the metrics of like how fast guys are running, then or how you know how many sprints, repeated sprints they have in a game, or how much they cover in a game, those metrics just keep going up over time. So you can't just keep doing the same thing because Somebody's doing something right, whether it's bringing more talent into the game or whatever. Uh, and in the U.S., it's like, especially in the MLS or the uh, USL, it's not like we're buying talent, right? So these premiership clubs, they can go out and they buy a guy for $30 million. They buy two or three guys for $30 million. That's not like an MLS. And those guys are just naturally talented. They came out of the womb and they can run 30 kilometers an hour and they can jump 30 inches or whatever. But it's not like we do that in the U.S. You know, those, sometimes we'll get those guys and they can't even kick a ball. So, uh, you know, it's just very, very different. But I, I do see it changing. Uh, you know, I think you're, there's, still, there's still a little bit of a notion of we need to have some soccer-specific stuff in here. We need to be like, you still see some of what I generally consider nonsense, you know, incorporating a, a ball into the weight room or doing like really hyper-specific uh, actions like kicking with bands and that kind of things, you know, those may have a place, but it's, you know, there's like this really odd misconception that a soccer athlete is totally different than every other athlete. And the reality is they run, they jump, they cut, you know, that kind of thing. 90% of their actions are pretty damn similar uh, to a lot of other athletes. 
And they're, for the most part, team sport athletes are novices in terms of physical training, you know, whether it's weight room or uh, aerobic training or whatever. Uh, they're kind of novices in that regard. And they don't need to do anything hyper-specific or, you know, really advanced. It's just spread them occasionally, you know, lift heavy occasionally, do some, do some, do some, you know, intense plyometrics. It's just get the basics really right, really well done. And it just goes such a long way. Coming from a track and field background where the difference between a winner and a loser is like, you know, one, one percent in the hundred meters or in the shop or the long or 1%. It's in, almost imperceptible. Mm. And that, we're just talking about physicality here. You know, you're basically faster by 1% or less that, uh, you know, there's no leeway for you got to like check all these boxes and really refine things and do everything perfectly. And I don't find that to be the case with, uh, with team sports. You yeah. just have to put the big rocks in the bucket and, uh, and do a couple things with regular regularity and frequency and do them well, you know, don't do shit push-ups and really bad squats and, yeah. you know, pick, you know, pick your core exercises and rep schemes and then you're pretty much good to go. Like you could get 80 to 90% of the development that you want in a team sport setting, very, very simply. It's, uh, I think people make it a lot harder than it is. The monitoring can be tough, like yeah. knowing when to change exercises or how to address different injuries and that kind of thing is, is obviously takes time and know how to do. But, um, you know, it's, uh, it's almost, uh, it's odd to me coming from sports like track and field and weightlifting how poor or, or almost, uh, I don't know, a way to, I don't mean to be insulting, but like ignorant of how to train the physicality. Uh, and I don't mean they're not well intended in any regards, but there's some basic tenets of performance training, which are pretty much ignored uh, in, in some team sports. And, you know, you, we probably all seen the kind of laughable type of things that come out of some of the European leagues and you see some similar stuff in the MLS. But I now think MLS is doing quite well. Like you're, you got some good coaches in there or really know what they're doing. And I think it's just going to take a little bit of time. I think, um, you know, until we probably until we get a, a couple of Americans who are really at the top of the game that have come through the collegiate system and lift weights and sprint hard you know, have a good work ethic and that's their success is attributable to that, that that's when you're going to start to see this real sea change of uh, culture, I think, in, in American soccer men's in particular. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And yeah, I mean, you touched on so many important, you know, things there. Like, um, it it's so true and it's crazy because, um, you know, I'm in an area, uh, I mean, I'm outside of DC and, you know, I'm in an area where soccer is like, like everywhere. I mean, and, you know, it is, it is like, it's, it's sort of mind blowing with so many like coaches around here that still just believe in like having to crush these kids, you know, playing all the time. And especially now where there's like, there's no end 
There's nothing they're like working towards. And I have these conversations with some of these coaches. I'm like, but listen, like this is a perfect time. If your kid is like, has been injured or like need some type of physical, you know, preparation. Uh, if you feel like, you know, your kids are, you know, you know, not as strong as they could be, or like have time to like work, work themselves to get stronger and lower their risk of injury and like all those things. This is the perfect time, but they, they still, you know, like kind of let that thing like fly over their head. And, and we're talking youth coaches here and, 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 and I kind of want to back up real quick and ask you like, how important do you think? And I, cause I, the reason I'm asking you is because I know you, you also are sort of in sort of like a online platform that works with like LT. Yeah. Yeah. And so how important do you feel that they start like eight, nine, 10 years old at a very basic level, obviously, and like, you know, move on up. Yeah, I think it's absolutely critical. So uh, myself and my business partner of a company in the UK called Proformance, we're really putting a lot of stuff out there in terms of LTAD and basically just bring it. It's that's an area where I think the U S is a little bit behind. So in the U S we have this, uh, what I call a sieve type of platform. We have more talent and we have more diverse from talent wise. And we have people, who, we have people from every nationality here, you know, so we have your, you have your people who are like European and African and South American and everything else. They're all here that other countries can't say that. So we have this un- incredibly diverse gene pool. We have, resources, we have support structures, we have the collegiate division one system, but you put all this together and we're missing, we don't do anything really until high school, late high school, college system really. So our college and pro system is pretty phenomenal, especially for our major league sports and our big time college system. But high school is just kind of like, we still have a lot of high school coaches who are like, the well-intentioned parent or whatever, or the math teacher who's, you know, maybe played in middle school or something like that. And then below high school is basically nothing, you know, it's like whatever the, the teacher or the, you know, uh, random parent or whatever, all well-intended and they need to be involved. But in many countries, the countries that do this right, what they do is they put their best coaches at the bottom of the pipeline because they don't have the talent pool that we have. So we can just take those, all these people, put them in the sieve and hope somebody comes out the other side. Because even if we don't have a great feeder system, well, they can't afford to do that, right? So if you have a country like, say, uh, Qatar, you know, there's that's a small city in the U.S. If you have a country like Sweden or Denmark or whatever, they have a, a total country population that is, like, smaller than a, a mid-major city in the U.S. And they, they can still compete with us, especially in sports like soccer, because they nurture their talent and they develop them along the way. Uh, if we were to ever do that, and obviously to some extent it's non-democratic to, to force kids to do certain things at a certain age and everything else, but putting that aside, that if you were to actually have a feeder system and a pipeline and a development system that is even remotely structured, it would really go a long way in terms of our national success. And you see that feed up, I think. Now, how are we to start? I think you got to start as early as possible. Now, does it need to look structured? Not from the appearance of someone that's working at a higher level, but kids need to be playing and that kind of thing pretty early on. They need to be exposed to, you know, as many different movement patterns and uh, sports as possible. Uh, you know, 
James and I will kind of talk about it and say, we want athletes to have as large of a movement library as possible. Right. So they, they don't, if they're, even if we pay them to be a soccer player uh, and we see them down the line, they want to be a soccer player. Well, they still need to shoot a basketball. They still need to play handball or whatever else. And it's really interesting. I uh, have uh, consulted or taken club visits at a, some of the biggest European clubs uh, most of the time at their academies. And what's really fascinating is how they do it. In, in an EPL, they're really doing a fantastic job at some places. Uh, Arsenal in particular really stands out to me as just having this unbelievable academy system. They're getting kids at eight years old. They're not necessarily playing more than our kids. They might actually be playing less. But what they're doing is like exposure to strength training. Exposure, you know, they have swimming lessons and they have a basketball court on site where the kids have to play basketball and that kind of thing. And that's the kind of stuff that I think needs to happen. Uh, we don't necessarily need a full-blown specialized kid really early on, which is the American tendency. Uh, but we want to, we can say that the path of specialization to getting someone to the elite level is actually generalization at the being general at the lower levels. So if we can, we want to start to integrate that type of work as early as possible. Uh, it should look, it should look like play. It should look like fun early on and get gradually more progressive, uh, more structured, uh, more intense over time, build someone's work capacity over time. And I think if we were to do that, we would actually, we, would, we wouldn't have to take this civ approach. We would be putting our best talent in the right sports and having them come out the other side as a better athlete. Right now, it's just like, we hope they make it through high school <laughs> well, well enough to have earned a college scholarship. Right? How many athletes don't ever get a college scholarship, especially in a sport like, say, soccer, where a lot of it comes down to being being with ten other guys in the right field, or you know, you know, having a coach that can nurture you or whatever. How many guys just get overlooked? Don't get a don't get a decent college scholarship, either give up or don't go to the right school. Then they their development gets stunted. Well, you know that's. That's not what happens overseas uh, in the academy systems overseas. And what's interesting is that we look at those academy systems and we go, okay, what they're doing is they're playing soccer all the time. They're not. They're like, it's all around athletic development. There's, it is like truly all encompassing. They're doing parkour, they're doing uh, basketball, they're, you know, swimming, gymnastics, learning how to tumble, all this stuff. It's pretty interesting. Um, and they're getting exposure to weight training movements. You know, not necessarily loaded, but they're learning how to do it uh, quite early. And I think, you know, that's that's a big part of the system. They, they're getting away with talent pools that are a fraction of our own and then beating the crap out of us on the soccer pitch because they're taking the small talent that they do have and actually developing it. They can't afford to lose it. You know, we, we, we have the size where we can afford to lose it. Uh, but if, even then, it's not going to work well in sports like soccer. Think. So, um, yeah, I mean, the, the other kind of thing, uh, and I actually need to put a lecture in this together. No, no, no. It's good. My, uh, I've got a 13-year-old, a 13-year-old okay. daughter. And uh, I've had a handful of people ask, like, oh, do you, what you know? Do you how do you feel about weight training kids or whatever? Like, here's start with this premise, right? Every parent 
what's the absolute best for their child. They would put their health, well-being, wellness, everything above all else for their child. And I can certainly say that's the case for myself. And my daughter, who's granted, she's lived around this stuff since she was born, basically. At two weeks, she was out on a track with me, having a starting gun fire off of her head, and she's living in the gym and everything else. My daughter is like, she started doing some form of lifting, uh, you know, not like maximum lifting heavy, probably, to be honest, at around eight years old. It was not structured at all. Sometimes it was basically just her being tagging on to a session that I'm coaching, and she just picks up a weight, she does a little something. But now she, by the time she's like 10 years old, she can do like clean, it looks like it's masterful. And she, she's 13 years old now, and we don't push the weights, but um, if we were to 1RM, I'm certain she could 1RM like 1.5 times body weight squat. I know she can clean like 1.2 times body weight. So power clean. So and we're not even testing, we're not even like doing a super structure or anything like that. But I think there's these you start to teach movement patterns, you start to get exposures to different activities. Uh, you know, and I, her mom is insanely talented, but I mean, she's, she doesn't, we don't even really train to be perfectly honest with you. She comes and she'll work out with me. She goes to the track and she'll, she sets the school record in, in the events that she does. So it's like, I'm just hands off. Like people are probably looking at it like, Oh, Mike Young is coaching the daughter six hours a day. Nope. We just, <laughs> I don't even have anything to do with it until she wants to say, hey, let's go do something. And she loves it. We go in and do it. And uh, she's had this exposure to these activities and different movement patterns for a long time. She can do cartwheels. She can do, you know, somersault. She can kick a ball. She can shoot a ball. Uh, she She's chosen kind of track and field and jumping and that kind of thing. But she can do, like, you know, all her weightlifting movements. So she's built this huge movement library where if she chooses to do something else, she can. If she wants to focus, she can. I haven't put her in any organized sport, to be perfectly honest with you. I'm totally hands-off. I just let her do what she wants to do. But she's kind of been a part of this, and I kind of think, oh, well, what is this case study of, like, it, I presumably know enough not to hurt, and I would, as a, as a coach and as a parent, I would presumably never want to do anything that isn't in the best interest of my child. What have I done here? Not, nothing really structured, a lot of organized play early on gradually ramping things up in terms of intensity, in terms of movement standards, that kind of thing. She's kind of self-selected as somewhat of a specialization. She likes to sprint. She likes to do jumping, but we still go in and we warm up by kicking a soccer ball. We warm up by throwing around a football. Uh, you know, we've got a lot of tag type games. She still goes into our, our LTAD class, which we call Scholastic Prep at Athletic Lab, which is kind of uh, exposure to just a ton of different movement patterns and different skill sets, so uh, developing fitness in a very fun and game-like child play-oriented way. So, you know, it's kind of interesting. I think it will, it, maybe it backfires on me. Maybe I should have taken a more structured approach. Maybe I should have uh, maybe I shouldn't have done anything. I don't know. But uh, we have, without any early specialization, she's, you know, head and shoulders above everyone else, all her peers. Um, and, you know, she's, I'm not the tallest guy. I'm like 5'8", uh, probably, 5'8 uh, and a half, maybe, on a really great day. And uh, she's above average height for her age. And we'll, she's, I think she's 13 and already reached average height for a female. So, uh, you know, all of the 
kind of negative concerns of strength training or exposure to training are just basically washed out the window. Here's this girl, she's 13, has been lifting since in some capacity since eight years old or whatever. She's taller than her parents would, her parents' genetics should have you believe that she is. She's stronger, she's faster. So, uh, you know, she's not forced into doing anything. She's actually like presses to do more. So it's been, uh, you know, I've kind of thought about turning this into a little presentation. What, what would you do if you, uh, if, you were, if you were training your child? And I think if you could approach it that way, understanding what the research literature says, and there's just a lot of great guys out there who are kind of doing the research on this topic, it's relatively straightforward. You know, the LTAD stuff is, from the parents' perspective, is filled with effectively mythology, right? And we need early specialization. Don't strength train kids. Don't train them too hard. All that's nonsense. I mean, you send a kid out to the playground and they're jumping off a six-foot playground, uh, you know, ladder or something like that, and getting 10 times body weight loads, and they're running around doing all kinds of crazy free play type stuff. And then that's what kids normally would do. You look at the animal kingdom and that's what animals do. Like that's how they learn how to survive. It's just free play and fighting each other, they fighting each other. Yeah, we want to take our kids at eight years old, put them into these early specialization programs and not do the not do the basic motor skill development that you'd see maybe in the weight room or plyometrics or physical competencies or learn just simply learning how to jump and land, learning how to run, learning how to change direction. All that stuff I think is just build this massive movement library. Once you have it, it's kind of like the old saying, or you're not going to forget how to ride a bike. And then once the kid, you know, falls down and needs to get up in, he knows how to do that. And once he needs to yeah. jump from an awkward position, he knows how to do that. So, uh, yeah, well, I think that's an area where we're really short sell, selling our kids short in the U.S. There's this idea that uh, LTAD, or child training, adolescent training should basically just be the same as uh, adult training, but for small humans, and that's not the case at all. Uh, from a from a physiology standpoint, from a motor control standpoint, they're not the same. They need to be they need to be handled differently than, than an adult. Uh, so, you know, I think a lot of people just treat it as like. Oh, that this is what the elites do. So we'll train our eight-year-old or ten-year-old as like that in a very specialized manner on the soccer pitch or wherever. And that's just that's not it's not necessary. It's actually not beneficial. Yeah, it's not really effective either. Um, yeah, I mean, I, it's crazy. It's funny you say that. Uh, talking about your daughter, I was talking to uh, actually. I was doing the same thing yesterday with Lee Taff, and he was talking about just the exposure. Just having it, like it doesn't need to be a lot. You know, you're just saying how your daughter kind of did it when she kind of felt like it and just exposing, you know, if, even if it's a little bit every single day, it, it still compounds and it's still at the end of the day, like over her, you know, years of, you know, training probably added up to where she is now. It's not like, you know, day right. one, you're telling her like, all right, we're going to clean like the bar. It's like, no. That's not how it works. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think a lot of parents get the misconception and I think a lot of it comes from, to be honest with you, uh, just, just like social media and, and, and then the, the, the amount of, the amount of things they're, they're, they're kind of like exposed to, 
on, you know, different internet and all that kind of stuff, seeing like, oh, this guy's doing this. I got to get my kid to do this. But it's like, yeah, you're seeing, and I say this to parents all the time, you're seeing, you're seeing the end result of that guy training for years. It's not like he started yesterday doing, you know, whatever clean or box jump or whatever. Um, and that's what I kind of have to tell parents. I'm like, yo, your kid is like at zero, even though he might be 13, you know, and, yeah. and that's the, and that's the thing. Like, and, and I think a lot of people try to like kind of beat around the bush as a, as some, and I think some coaches do this too. And, and not really tell the parents what the kid needs. And I understand like the kid wants to be fast, but like, all he's been exposed to is soccer practice. That's not going to, that's like, that's, that's nothing. Um, teaching kid yeah. how to run properly, mechanics, like all that stuff. Like it's, it takes time. It's not like overnight. Yeah. And even then, you know, it needs, just like soccer needs to be addressed forever. Basically. If you don't want it to go away, you pretty much need to keep it. There's this notion that, Oh, we'll send our kid to seed camp or whatever it is. And he'll be magically faster for the rest of his life. And, <laughs> Probably that's less true than if you send him to soccer camp. You know, you send him to soccer camp, he's going to learn some technical, tactical skills, and you might be able to hold on to them without playing. But the physical side of things, you're going to lose the physical adaptation within four to six weeks, and then you got nothing. So, uh, yeah, we talk about that with our, with even with our pros. You know, this idea that these guys are novices. They might be at the highest level when it comes to soccer skill and tactical technical. When it comes to physical development, they're somewhat novices, especially when we get into internationals or you know, rookies or whatever. And if you you know you can kind of relate it to to these parents or, or to even the sport coaches when the time comes, where you just say, look, if you have kids one time a day or one time a week, excuse me, one time a week or two times a week, whatever it is, which is quite often the case with a strength and conditioning coach. You just have these kids one time a week and you want to teach them how to play soccer. What are you going to do? Are you going to, shoot, are you going to teach them the trick shots? Because that's what's going to show up on social media, the trick shots. Or are you just going to show them how to dribble the ball, you know, or hit a shot or, you know, lock your ankle or whatever it is. You know, you got to start with the very, very basic stuff and not, not look at what's on social media because social media is like, it's a, it's a blessing and a curse. Uh, you know, it disseminates information really quickly. Um, but a lot of it is just nonsense. You know, it's, it's interesting. It's eye-opening. But, you know, it's not what most of the top guys do, period. And a lot of times, it's certainly not what they did when they got, what got them to the top. You know, they did the very basics, the fundamentals well, and then they learned how to add on some other things. Uh, Social media rewards sexy and uh, novel. So if you you know you show a you show a heavy squat or a well performed squat on social media, you know unless it's uh, you know some girl doing it in a bikini, it's not going to get any attention. But you show uh, a single leg squat on a bosu ball or something overhead, <laughs> and it's a lot of attention. You know, so that's that's a great example of like the value of or how you have to filter these things, you know, you have to filter this, these novel concepts, which might be interesting and thought provoking, but actually not very useful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, 
It's interesting, man. Um, so kind of leading into that, uh, like talking about speed and stuff like you were talking about plot metrics and stuff, like how often are you exposing, I mean, even young kids or even, you know, the girls that you work with, like what, like what's their exposure to like high intensity sprinting? Like even if like most of the time in the off season, like, is it day, like every time they come in and then like, is it, you know, six weeks, the volume increases or how does that work? Uh, so I shoot for a minimum of once a week is what I want. So uh, in an ideal world, they would hit once a week in a fitness type session and then they would hike once a week in a game or you know, open field type of session. Now that's actually wishful thinking a lot of times, uh, having GPS tracked uh, players and had in-stadium in cameras, it's actually not very realistic to assume that players get to stimulus threshold in terms of their speed in a game or an uh, open field practice setting. But at the very least, we need to see at one time in a dedicated fitness session where we're not constrained by fatigue or the ball or other players or that kind of thing. So that pretty much holds true for my pros, my youth athletes, whatever. Um, and we are training. We also we actually have the uh, largest soccer club in, I believe, the world, uh, NCFC Youth. And we we've been working with them for the past few years. So we handle all their academy ECNL teams, academy and ECNL teams, and uh, you know we give them at least one exposure. That the total volume. Uh, changes a little bit, very little bit, but it probably it starts relatively low and it uh, it caps out at a relatively low point. So, in terms of dedicated fitness sessions, we're always somewhere between 150 and 300 meters of total volume. With younger kids, it might be a little bit less. Um, but uh, what you see here is that you don't have to do a lot to get a huge benefit is the kind of the way that I look, but you do have to do it with regularity and you do have to um, have the, have the appropriate frequency and, and amount of exposure. And then the non-starter of all of this is that the intensity has to be there. A lot of times we go out and, you know, you uh, with consulting or uh, even first days with teams, you'll go out there and you'll, you'll see that a lot of team, times team sport athletes don't know the difference between a 90% run or a 90% effort and a 100% effort. You, know, you see them grimace their face and they're still, they're, it's like a fast run, which is altogether different than a, than a sprint. So we really do ask our athletes to sprint, sprint. We hold them accountable as best as possible, whether that's making it a competition or a race or uh, a tag game or, or pros, they, they know that we're monitoring their GPS metrics. They, we can see whether they hit the desired uh, peak velocities. And if they don't, then we're going we're gonna to call them on the map for that. We watch those, watch the total volumes of at peak velocity every single week, make sure that they get their, their amount in. The research on this is kind of clear. You want to have like that one time, one time a week exposure. Um, the number of repetitions is going to vary a little bit. There's some research that says basically there's a sweet spot. Uh, you don't want too little. Too little, you're not going to get the performance benefit or inoculation from injury. Too much, you're going to get a higher likelihood for injury and probably overtrain as well. So there's a sweet spot. Uh, I've personally found with the teams that I work with, and perhaps this is because of our 
huge chronic workload that we handle higher sprint volumes and sprint rep frequent sprint rep uh, numbers number counts than what shows up in the research literature or higher by almost fifty percent uh, seems to be our sweet spot. But I think the research is basically says get up that exposure at ninety five plus percent. Uh, with with a regularity of about one plus time a week, uh, more than that's not necessary. Probably not beneficial. You do it too often, you actually raise the likelihood for injury. Uh, you don't sprint fast enough. When you're doing 85, 90 percent runs. You don't get performance benefit. You don't get injury inoculation. Uh, you don't get the number of reps in. Same thing. You don't get the appropriate amount of volume. Same thing. So there's just a couple boxes you need to check. It's really not all that difficult. Um, I do try to. Uh, work in and change the direction and if I could maybe the ball but that's those are very much secondary for me to actually make someone who's, who's fast um, and we, we've been quite successful in that I think in, in the past couple of years in the NWSL we've had uh, anywhere between uh, four and five of the top fastest six players in the league and I, I think our starting lineup is like uh probably average faster than the fastest player on, the, on the, any other team. So we, uh, we got one girl on the team, and I'm not taking full credit for this. I, I would like to think I have helped foster this. She's actually very talented, and she'd be a great track and field athlete, but she's as fast as most men. You know, I think you've seen those charts that they uh, World Cup or FIFA will put out or EPL will put out, and they'll say, oh, here's the 10 fastest players in the given league. She'd be like eighth fastest player in the EPL. Um, and, you know, so she, she'd run, run around a lot of male players. She'd run as fast as uh, 35 kilometers an hour or 34.8 kilometers an hour, which is like a 21-ish it's obvious on the field. She's, it's obvious that she's the fast person, which we've actually got a couple of players on our team that are pretty dang close to as fast as that. So um, it makes a difference. I think when it comes to football players, soccer players, you just got to relate it. You know, sometimes they think, oh, this is a track thing or doing sprints or doing these sprint mechanics drills or for sprinters. But, I mean, you say, how, how much quicker do you have to get to a ball before it makes a difference? You know, if you're to a ball, a flip before someone else or a flip before your old self, does that make a difference? It makes all the difference. You know, it's like, I, again, I think when I watch the U.S. national team play or even our team play against some European clubs, they might be more skilled than us, uh, but they never get a chance to show because we're on the ball. Uh, we can we can attack better, we can press better because we're just better athletes. So uh, I think that holds true for our club as well as for uh, you know, the U.S. national team in general. We, the women's side really does well at that. Yeah, no, no. I, the, women, the women's side in this country is a whole nother topic of conversation i mean um like you said in the beginning it's just it's just totally different um i mean personally i mean obviously i played soccer so and and, and i'm not saying the skill is different on the men like tremendously different on the men and women's side um i think uh it's there's more I think in the men's side, there's just a little bit more like uh, the the speed. Obviously, the speed of the game is totally a little bit 
quicker. Um, and that plays a role into the skill and ability to handle the ball and all that kind of stuff. But the women's side, I, I think it's, 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 it's getting there. Like in, since like I've started watching it more recently and I think it's, you know, the women's side, especially on the physical standpoint, like they've always been here. But I think they're they're getting to that point where it's like evening out as far as like the skill and the ball movement and this and that kind of stuff. So it's like that's why I think they just dominate everybody. Yeah. Um, and it's and it you can definitely see like how how much of a difference um, it is against like other countries for sure. Sure. Um. So, question my you know and and, and this comes back to like why I started you know kind of looking into you like when it comes down to and i think this is a you know obviously speed is huge but i think one of the biggest things in this in this country alone that everybody loves and wants to like have the best routine is like fitness for soccer it's like what do i gotta do to be so fit to run 90 you know um and i think a lot of people still believe in these like you know, 200s, 300s, all this like, you know, track, I'm not, I'm not like saying track like fitness, but like it really is, but it's, but I try to tell these kids, it's like, yo, you're you're not, you're not trained to be a track star. Like it's not, you got to like understand like what you're working towards. So kind of, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not, I don't want to take a lot of, I know you're busy and I don't want to take a lot more of your time, but kind of like you can end it after here. Kind of like break down like what you typically would do. I mean, and I'm sure that it overlaps with the pros and the college and the youth level like type of fitness work. So I do think there's a, a high aerobic demand in soccer, um, and it's not as readily evident in the game. Like players aren't playing at max heart rate, but the high aerobic uh, component plays a role in supporting the high speed runs, like the intermittent high speed runs. And this becomes more important actually as you get to higher and higher levels where players actually don't run around all that much. They sprint and then walk, sprint and then walk, sprint and walk. Uh, like Messi is a great example. He covers very little in a game, uh, but when you see him run, he's sprinting. Not, not the fastest guy in the world, but he's, when he does run, he sprints. And he's using his energy appropriately. Um, so we do address aerobic demands. Um, you know, the coach that I currently work with actually does like some of the old school type of workouts. Uh, it wasn't it isn't exactly what I would do, but we, in the balance of say, not doing, not training hard, or training hard with a little old school workout. I'm all for doing the old school workout because we're going to get insanely fit. So he doesn't like shuttle runs and things like that. He likes to do that. Uh, it's not exactly how I would do it. I think I, I, when I work with athletes in the off season and I have uh, run some of their other programs, we do a little bit more intermittent running, intermittent running, even like for aerobic development. So we'll start with some early, early stage, steady state work, kind of low intensity uh, really clean stimulus. We'll only do that for a little while, and then we kind of dump that, basically, uh, other than for recovery purposes. Post-game, I think a 15-minute slow jog can be can be nice. 
But other than that, we drop this kind of steady state work. Uh, they get enough of that level in, in kind of longer practices, basically. Yeah. We will do, uh, we sprint once a week, so that's not fully like match fit, but I think that's an important part of this continuum of basically looking at going ends to middle. So you got to be able to have a big aerobic capacity and you got to be able to sprint fast. It doesn't matter if you can go, 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 but if your go is really slow, it doesn't matter. So you want to be able to have afterburners. And then ideally, you want to be able to repeat your afterburners uh, for 90 minutes. And so that requires you to be fast, and it also requires you to have a, an aerobic capacity that underpins that. Now, we'll move towards the middle. So we will occasionally do some of the uh, like uh, interval-style workouts. Uh, like, for example, yesterday I had the girls doing 30-second bouts with, like, two minutes of recovery. Now on the surface, it'll look like a track and field workout, but we had, they were like in an open space and we were actually using some sports technology and they were chasing, chasing lights basically for 30 seconds. So it was like totally random and chaotic and uh, players running all over the place and changing direction. It was just crazy. Uh, but they're working hard for 30 seconds. Uh, and it, that's about the full extent of what you'll see in a game, like 30 seconds of just bonkers activity, and then they basically have to slow down and walk. Uh, it actually happens very, very rarely in a game, but what the research seems to show is that while that happens very rarely in a game, because of where it sits on like the energy system continuum, it, it leads over a little bit between the aerobic development and speed power. So then we, we don't have... That's the stuff, that's at least the time intervals that a lot of well-intentioned but misinformed coaches will like to work with, right, 200s or whatever, tracks down with this. Um, I generally won't just do it where we're like running a straight line or doing track, actual track work. I think that's kind of a bad idea uh, for a variety of reasons. But sometimes the time intervals will stay, will stay similar. Time intervals just dictate the physiology that you're addressing, whether that's uh, the work, work to rest ratio, the work duration, the restoration, the intensity of the uh, work. So that's just dictating your physiology. It's not sport specific in any regards. So that's where I think having an understanding of the, the kind of those domains from a track and field background can help. Uh, you know, um, we'll do quite a bit of uh, max aerobic speed running. So we'll test to make sure that we know what, what an appropriate speed would be uh, or distances would be, and then use max aerobic speed running. That, that's much more intermittent, but aerobic. So that's like 15 seconds on, 15 seconds off type efforts. Uh, you know, you can set courses, you can include the ball a little bit, maybe a little bit of change of direction. Um, and then we will do uh, some repeat sprint work. So about once a week, we'll do repeat sprint work. Uh, actually, scratch that, probably twice a month, we'll do repeat sprint work. Uh, that, that's basically max sprints uh, on an insufficient rest interval. So we have to repeat that only like six, six seven, eight reps. We're not turning it into a, like a massive lactate workout. It's basically like you got to be able to maintain that high power output. We're going to give you less rest than you actually need. That is actually what occurs in games. So uh, that occurs quite frequently when you look at the match analysis reports for games and saying like, hey, for most of the games at the highest level, players are doing a high intensity effort about every 40, 
40 to 45 seconds, depending on the level of play and the league and that kind of thing. And at certain points in the game, they might do it every 30 seconds. And those points of the game, those five minutes or so of the game, are where goals tend to be scored or stopped. So they need to be ready for that. And that's really kind of training this, completing this ends to middle continuum. Like, can, you, can I repeat this high power output activity? So I tend to kind of gravitate towards the max aerobic speed running, uh, combined with some repeat sprint work, and uh, probably twice a month do what is effectively like an anaerobic glycolytic session, uh, not doing 200s per se, but in that 30 to 45 second time period of work where that's the type of energy system domain that doesn't really get addressed in games. And we're not addressing it for specificity of the games, but because it has so much bang for your buck. Like I could literally do six times 30 second bouts with two minutes of effort. We're done in about 12 to 15 minutes. And that's, that's like all they need for, for the week. You know, it's so such a powerful stimulus. You don't need to do it all the time. The mistake comes into play when you like feel like you need to have a kid puking every day or that harder is better. Like at, at lower levels, the sport is more aerobic and probably a little bit more inter, uh, or lactate. But at higher levels, you don't really ever hit uh, at lactate threshold at all. Like you're just sprinting and walking or sprinting and slow jogging. And the best players tend to do more of that, especially in your up top position. So, um, you know, how I would train a kid would be a little bit different. They'd obviously have need a little bit more aerobic capacity, so we we steer more towards like four minute four minute uh, efforts and that kind of thing. I will rarely, if ever, do like long, slow, steady state work other than for like a week or two, very early in the preseason, and then that might just be once a week uh, if that. And then we move to like longer intervals, four by four minutes, that kind of thing. Pretty, pretty well research validated for that. It's like a sweet spot for aerobic stimulus. You can incorporate the ball on that, make a little course where they dribble around, monitor heart rate, make sure they stay in their 70 to 79% max heart rate zone. And you're golden. You know, it's uh, soccer is interesting because it's, it's, a, it's the true hybrid sport for energy systems. You know, there's really not another sport where it does require to be fast, does require to go for 90 minutes or 80 minutes, whatever the case may be, does require to uh, have, have see anaerobic glycolytic at some point in the game for probably like two minutes, two to five minutes or something like that. So it's a true hybrid sport. American football is not that, basketball is not that, rugby is not that. Uh, they all kind of shift from one side or the other of that continuum and soccer pretty much requires everything in a, in a near equal balance. Uh, in that regard, it's a, it's a you know kind of great test of like training and fitness because you, you can't really put all your your eggs in one basket because you'll get left behind really quickly. If you're really fit but not fast, you're never going to be on the ball. <laughs> if you're really fast but not fit, you're, you're going to be okay for 10 minutes and then that's it. So, uh, you know, it is an interesting sport and has really interesting demands. Requires a little bit of everything. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think at the higher level, I, I think a lot of players, um, you know, it's one of those things where you got to manage your energy, and because obviously the subs is you, you might not yeah. get subbed off. So managing your energy and not running around like with your chicken with your head cut off, 
Um, you know, it's one of those things that they got to do. And I think at the lower level, you know, high school and club and all that, where substitutions is, you know, you're, you're gassed. You can come right off. It's easy for the coach to make that sub. Um, but still, you know, it's a good thing to, you know, be fit. I mean, it just kind of shows you the type of work and, you know, things that you've done to make sure that you are, um, you know, ready for the season. I think it, it's huge. So, yeah, I, I agree with you all on all, all that. Um, it's just, you still got a lot of these coaches doing 300s all day, every day. And it's just mind-blowing. Yeah. And yeah. then they wonder why injury, injury, injury of every part of the body is every other week. Um, and every, every player every other week. And it's, it's still trying to just educate and bridge that gap. <laughs> yeah, right. so, yeah. Yeah. They're really just hitting one aspect of performance. I think you, people confuse well-intentioned people confuse, uh, difficult with effective. And a lot of the training that you'll need to do is not all that difficult, but it's really effective. Mm-hmm. There's a time and place for that really difficult, challenging training, but you don't have to do it all the time. You know, effort, effort and effectiveness are completely different concepts. Uh, and if all you did was just run those vomit-inducing 300s, then you know, you're, you're going to be good at running 300s in a sport that doesn't require it. Yeah, exactly. Well, Mike, I really appreciate this. Um, you know, I don't, I know you're a busy guy. <laughs> um, but so how can people connect with you, kind of look at the stuff that you do? I mean, do you still run your, uh, your blog or is it just mostly? A little bit. Day? So I, uh, I've kind of morphed slowly along with, uh, I guess, the, the way people consume information. I have gotten away from blogging, not because I want to, but because I have a hard time sitting down and writing much. Uh, But I have been putting increasingly more stuff on social media, my Instagram, Mike Young, uh, PhD. I throw out quite a bit and recycle a lot of my kind of evergreen content on Twitter, which is just at Mike Young. And then um, I've got YouTube videos for free and slide shares for free all over the place if you just look for them, some of which are on uh, Athletic Labs' website. Uh, uh, or sorry, Athletic Labs' YouTube account. Um, but there's a couple other places that put that stuff out there, Fusion Sport, Prince, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, I'll put all that con- con- uh, those links in the show notes and stuff. Um, awesome. And then uh, I know you, I, I've seen some of your stuff on, is it SlideShare? That, is that right? Yeah, I put a lot of my slides, uh, my slide decks up on the SlideShare.net. Uh, so yeah. some of it is a little hard to interpret because I tend to present in a way that doesn't use a lot of words. But uh, yeah. SlideShare.net slash HPC Sport, uh, which okay. is my old company name, uh, or it's like corporate name that, that we've kind of no longer do business as. H as in human, P as in performance, C as in consulting, S-P-O-R-T. But you can still find all the slideshows there. I update it every now and then with some, some new ones. Cool. Well, thank you again. I appreciate it. And um, oh, also, if um, I meant to say this to you, I'm actually doing a, I don't know if you've seen it, uh, with NSCA, a soccer-specific clinic. So if you know any coaches um, that would be interested, I can send you the info via email. Awesome. Um, 
and you know just just trying to uh bring yeah. out more good content yeah. and share sure. and, and provide people awesome well done all right, all right yeah. thank you thanks, thanks, man. Man. Thanks, see ya Thanks for listening to Train to Perform with Julian Sisman. Learn how you can work with Julian in a personal training session, either online or in person at prepareforperformance.com. And follow on social media for more tips on training, fitness, and sports performance on Twitter at jsisman_pfp underscore PFP and Instagram at prepareforperformance.